Well, thanks, Bob, for doing our scripture reading this morning. Uh, it never fails. Bob always gets the fun scripture readings. I, it, I don't plan this. He, he reads the same month, week every month, but uh, he always gets the ones with interesting names and, and places. So uh, thank you for, for doing that for us this morning. We are going to jump into Ezra 7 this morning. We've uh, taken a couple of weeks away from the book of Ezra. Uh, which was kind of fitting because uh, the book of Ezra, as we've talked about, really splits down the middle between chapters 6 and 7. And when we come into chapter 7, as we're going to do today, we're really fast-forwarding about 50 years from the end of Ezra chapter 6. We're moving into a whole new generation of God's people. Uh, formerly, it had been the leader Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple. That was the emphasis of the first six chapters. But now it's, it's more about Ezra and about the rebuilding, not of the temple, but of God's people and this spiritual revival that Ezra was privileged to lead in. And and then the key to this revival, and, it, and if we're praying for revival in our nation, we need to understand what the key to revival is. The key to revival is really wrapped up in what I've entitled today's message and what we hear three times in Ezra 7 and we'll hear three more times next week in Ezra 8. It's all about the good hand of God upon us. It's God that brings revival. That may sound very obvious, but we need to be reminded that, like all things, we are dependent upon God in, in every way. And this uh, scripture today reminds us of the, what the good hand of God looks like. We see references to the hand of God all the way back to when God first delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt under the hand of Moses. We see the good hand of God was upon Moses and, and was there empowering Moses for the task of leading his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land under the hand of Joshua. And it wasn't so much about Moses or about Joshua, it was about the good hand of God upon those men. In the same way, it wasn't so much about Zerubbabel or about Ezra, it was about the good hand of God upon those men. And so as we pray for revival, I want to encourage us to pray for God to raise up men like Ezra that have the good hand of God upon them and that will be used of God to bring about the revival that we're praying for. This is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. So as we think about Ezra today, uh, J.G. McConville said this. He said, the real emphasis in our verses lies upon the personality of Ezra himself. It would be hard to imagine one better fitted to give Israel a new beginning. And that's really what this is here in Ezra 7. Drawing together as he did the roles of priest, lawgiver, and wise man. And those roles would ultimately be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But more on that later on. Derek Kidner said, Ezra is a, a model reformer in that what he taught, he had first lived. And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the scriptures. So with study, conduct, and teaching, put deliberately in the right order, as we're going to look at as we get to verse 10, that each of these was then able to function properly at its best. And again, more on that here in just a moment. And finally, one of my favorite authors, Warren Wearsby, he said, when God wants to judge a nation, 
he sends them inferior leaders. Let me just pause there and let's think on that for a moment. By the way, if you don't believe that's true, go read Isaiah 3. Actually, throughout the book of Isaiah, as I just finished reading that in my Bible reading last week, you see this common pattern. When God wants to bring judgment, He does it by sending inferior leaders. But when He wants to bless them, He wants to send revival, He sends them men like Ezra. And so let's look at Ezra today and see the good hand of God upon him. See the pattern of what God does when he wants to bring about revival in the land. So here's our key truth for today. The the good hand of God will give God's people. We're going to look at three things this week. And then next week when we go to part two, we're going to look at three more things. that The good hand of God produces among the people of God by his design. So first of all, this morning... The good hand of God will give God's people favor with God-appointed authorities. From the very beginning of this book, if you think back to Ezra 1, if you were with us when we began uh, this book together, from the very beginning we saw the hand of God working things behind the scenes, orchestrating the events of history so that these pagan Persian kings were actually accomplishing that which God had already said was going to happen. He uses these unbelieving kings of Persia, these perceivably mightiest men in the land, to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And let me say, as we are approaching an election just about a month from now, let me say that same God is still on the throne of heaven today. So as we may be wringing our hands wondering which of these men is going to end up as our next president, let me say as the people of God, there's no reason for us to be wringing our hands. The purposes of God will be accomplished. We're going to come back to that again and again. God is continuing to orchestrate the events of history according to his divine plan. And so we see God's hand here. Providing for Ezra as Ezra is setting out, just as Zerubbabel had done 60 years prior, Ezra is setting out to go to Jerusalem to take part, not in the rebuilding of a temple, but in the rebuilding of God's people to bring about revival in that day. And God provides all that was necessary. So what did Ezra need for the task at hand? Well, first of all, Ezra needed people. And by God's hand, the king sent out people. If you look at verse 13, you begin in verse 11. There's a letter that the Artaxerxes, the king wrote on behalf of Ezra to empower him for the work that he was going to do in Jerusalem. And the first thing that Ezra needed was people to accomplish the task. Now, in Zerubbabel's day, when Cyrus allowed them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel took back with him 50,000 people. That was a large number that went back in that day. In Ezra's day, it was a smaller group, only about 1,500 men plus their wives and children. So just a few thousand returned in Ezra's day. But those were the ones that were necessary for accomplishing the task that Ezra was given to do. He needed people And by God's hand, the king sent out people to do the work. What was the next thing that Ezra needed to accomplish the work he was given to do? Well, he needed provisions. And as you see, beginning in verse 20, or actually throughout this letter, you begin to see it was by God's hand that the king set aside provisions. 
He gave him everything that was necessary for accomplishing the task at hand. He even mentions silver that was set aside and and food provisions that were set aside and animals that were set aside for sacrifice as they would renew the worship of God there in their day. By the way, that amount of silver that's listed there, a hundred talents of silver, that would be somewhere in the realm of about two million dollars. So this was no small provision. God provided what was necessary both for the four-month, 900-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, but also for everything that they were going to do once they got there. By God's hand, the provisions were made. And finally, in verse 25, you see another thing that Ezra needed. Ezra needed leaders. Ezra needed godly men that would be able to come alongside him and serve in this time of the renewal of God's people. And by God's hand, the king spurred on a plurality of leaders. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture. I've referenced this many times, but I want you to see it again here. If we go back to Exodus chapter 18, the same thing happened when God spurred on Moses' father-in-law to say to Moses, hey Moses, this deal where you're judging all of the people, where you're trying to do all the leadership yourself, this is not good. You need to raise up some other men who can come alongside you and can take a part of this burden themselves. The plurality of leadership is a biblical precedent that needs to be continued today. That's why in our church over the last several years, we have moved away from a a single pastor model to a plurality of pastors that are joining together with me in this work of leadership. And we see it again in verse 25 here. This pagan king says to Ezra, you don't need to be doing this by yourself. You need to be raising up other men who also know the word of God, who also love the things of God and who will join you in this task. And if you think, well, maybe that's just an Old Testament idea, go over to 2 Timothy 2.2, and you begin to see the same thing. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Hey, Timothy, as you're building the church of God, go and find godly men who will be able to teach others also. You need to multiply yourself. This is what Christian ministry looks like. In this day in which we live of celebrity pastors and big names on big billboards, we often forget the fact that we are to be about a ministry of multiplication. And whatever God has given you to do, if that dies with you, then the kingdom of God suffers. But as we recognize the role of making disciples, teaching others to follow Christ as we follow Christ, or as Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. As we think about multiplying ourselves, this fulfills the kingdom purpose of God. And so Ezra was given the same task. And all the while, King Artaxerxes thought he was in charge. So true of worldly leaders, isn't it? They think that they are the ones in charge far too often, and yet God was orchestrating everything according to His plan, providing people and provisions and a plurality of leaders that were needed to accomplish the work that Ezra was given to do. And all this by the hand of God. Philippians 4 reminds us 
that our God will supply every need of ours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so then we can say in response to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. We can respond to the provision of God with praise toward God because he is faithful. Whatever he has called you to do, if God has called you to a task, he will most certainly equip you for that task. He will give you everything necessary to accomplish that task. Now, sometimes it'll come little by little. He only gives you the light for the path, the next step along the way. He gives you daily bread, what you need in the moment, not what you need months ahead. But God will provide every need of his people for accomplishing his purpose. And so we see the good hand of God that was providing favor with the authorities. Secondly, this morning in verses 7 through 10, we, we see the good hand of God also provided fervor for God-articulated assurances. I know that's a mouthful, but I, I wanted you to see here what we're rejoicing in is this. As Ezra rejoiced, we're rejoicing in the fact that God has spoken. We're rejoicing in that. We sang this morning of a God who speaks to us. And primarily, He speaks to us through His holy word. He is not like the false gods, the the wooden idols, the idols of clay and stone and, and precious metals that could not speak, that had no mouth to move and no utterances to make. He is the God who from the very beginning spoke. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all that was. And how did He do so? He created it by His spoken word. He spoke into existence and He continues to speak into our existence primarily through the word of God. And through the living word, Jesus Christ. Now there is a very false notion that is running rampant in our day. That would encourage us to try to take up that same kind of powerful speaking in our own lives. It's called the word faith gospel. It is a false gospel. It's a gospel that says, well, look at Genesis 1. God spoke things into creation. So you too have that same power to speak things into being. And if you think that that's a a false gospel that's just being proclaimed out in Hollywood somewhere or where all the crazies live, no, that's being proclaimed right here in our own community. That we have a similar ability to speak into existence things that we desire. And if you just believe enough, if you just speak rightly, it's where some of the, uh, some of the, the, uh, more secular, uh, encouraging motivational speakers get the idea of the power of positive thinking. You speak it and it'll happen. That's not what the Bible is teaching. That is a power that's reserved for God alone. So if you begin to hear a preacher talking about speaking things into existence, phrases like, your words create your world. Let me say to you very clearly this morning, that's a false gospel. It's the Word of God that has created our world. And it's the Word of God that will continue to sustain our world until that day when He is done with this world and brings us on into the next. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. 
There are plenty of false gospels out there that would seek to dethrone God and set us in a place where only God deserves to sit. Let's elevate the word of God as we should. A fervor for God's word, for his assurances and his promises ought to define the people of God. So what does it look like for us to have a fervor, a passion for the word of God? It's described there in verse 10 as he has, as Ezra is described in verse 10. This ought to be descriptive of the people of God in every age. And where you see revival in history, these things are always at the forefront. There's always a renewal, a revival centered around the word of God. So what does it look like? Look at verse 10. First of all, we must study the word. We must study the word of God. Now that begins, yes, with reading the word, but it goes beyond that. It goes to a place of memorizing the word and meditating upon the word and looking into the word day by day that we might see the treasures of God. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to go on a treasure hunt day by day as you open the word of God. Now there will be days in which you will read the word of God and you won't find a treasure that seems to suit your particular circumstance but let me encourage you in this when you see something that doesn't particularly seem to meet your particular circumstance maybe ask this question perhaps that treasure is not for you today perhaps that's meant for you to share with someone else you see that's what ezra understood that study ought to lead to something but i'm getting ahead of myself psalm 1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is where? His delight is in the law of the Lord. His heart is set toward the word of God. He loves the word of God so much that he meditates on, he thinks deeply about, he marinades in, if you will, the word of God all throughout the day. And the psalm goes on to say he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. It bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, but it's not so with the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And for this reason, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. It's the word of God that is a dividing line between the righteous and the wicked. But it's not just an Old Testament idea. Second Timothy two. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. What are we talking about here? One who rightly handles the word of truth. And again, I want to say to us today, this word is being radically mishandled in far too many pulpits today. And I'm not talking about out in crazy California. I'm talking about here locally. False gospels are creeping into our own community and men are mishandling the word of God. And we need to be aware of this and we need to be wary of it. It's not enough for a man to stand in a pulpit and open a Bible and begin to speak. 
You must ask yourself, and I want to encourage you to ask this every time you come into this place. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17, of whom sitting under the preaching of the Apostle Paul, it says that each of them went home to see for themselves in their own copies of the Word of God. Each of them went to see for themselves if what Paul was saying was true. And if they needed to judge the words of the Apostle Paul according to the word of God, if they needed to weigh out Paul's words on a scale with God's word, then you better be doing that with this preacher. I am not immune from error. It is only by the grace of God. And time that you allow me to spend in study by supporting this church and its ministry The study of God's word then leads to the second part. Studying God's word leads to doing God's word. Understand, when we talk about studying God's word, we're not talking about a purely academic exercise. We're talking about a transformational exercise. That reading and meditating on and memorizing the word of God, going deep in the scriptures, leads to a transformed life and then walks in obedience to the things of God. It must be so. In Deuteronomy 28, God begins to lay out blessings and curses for his people. And though the difference between the blessing and the curse is obedience to the word of God. Deuteronomy 28.1 He says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And you go on through Deuteronomy 28 and you see in the latter half of Deuteronomy 28, the same thing is said about curses. But in the reverse, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then there will be curses that will come upon you and you will not be elevated above, among the nations. Instead, you will be carried away by the nations. The blessings and the curses related to what do we do with the word of God? Are we practicing what we're hearing? James chapter 1 encourages us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing again, the connection between God's blessing And what we do as God's people with his word. These two things are tied together in every way. But it's not just studying the word and and doing the word. This leads then rightfully to teaching the word. And the progression here is essential. It begins with studying the word. It continues into doing the word. And then ultimately there must be a place where teaching the word is is happening deuteronomy 6 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what will you do with them? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And basically what he's saying is wherever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, whatever you're into, that the word of God would be at the very center of that. And not just the hearing of the word of God and not just the practice of the word of God, but the teaching of the word of God. And I know how quick we are to say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching. We do this with two main gifts, evangelism and teaching. We're real quick to say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so therefore I don't need to share the gospel with others. And yet the Bible has clearly called all of us, whether we have a gift of evangelism or not, to be faithful in sharing the gospel. The same thing is true with teaching. You say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, so I'm exempt from this. No, that's not the way this works. We all have a role in teaching that there are some who are set apart, as Ezra was. There are some who are set apart for particular roles in teaching. But all of us have been given a role in teaching the Word of God. Mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers in this room. Your role in the lives of your children is outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 6. To teach them the Word of God. It is not enough to participate in the drop-off society in which we live where I'll just take them to church. Like I take them to school to learn math, take them to the baseball coach to learn how to to catch a ball, and I'll take them to church to learn Jesus. And I want to say to you that will not be enough. The one or two hours a week that we'll have with your kids will not be enough to build in them a firm foundation if there is not also accompanied with that teaching that's happening at home. I don't know how quickly we are to say, well, I feel ill-equipped. I'm not able to teach them the Word of God any more than I can teach them algebra. But I would say to us, that's why we have to go back to command one. Study the Word. Get to know God's Word yourself. Practice the Word that you might know Him more deeply. And then you'll be able to teach that which you know. And that which you have practiced. Colossians 3 to the church says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Does the word of Christ dwell in us richly? In a day where we have more opportunities to hear the word of God, I can pull up a thousand preachers on my podcast app. I can go to Right Now Media and listen to dozens and dozens of great Bible study series. There are more resources available for studying the Word of God than any generation has ever known. And yet in recent polls asking about basic doctrines of the faith, here's what you find. This generation in which we're living is more biblically illiterate than any generation that has gone before. The resources aren't getting it done. It has to begin with a devotion to the Word of God, which results in studying, doing, and teaching. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Word of Christ. How do you know if the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly? Here's one indicator. It's producing gratitude in you. 
That is a huge indicator that we so often overlook. If if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, it's producing a thankfulness in your life. It's one marker of many. Number three this morning, the good hand of God produces favor with God's authorities. It produces fervor for God's word. And finally, it produces fortitude for God assigned activities. You see, God didn't raise up a man like Ezra for some small, easily accomplished task. What God gave Ezra to do was so far beyond him that certainly Ezra was shivering at the thought of his own failure if God's good hand did not lead out and follow and work every step of the way toward the completion of what God had assigned. There was courage needed. Ezra references it at the end of this chapter. If you look at verse 27. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. And notice this, he says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God was on me. If, you, if you're taking note this morning, that's the third time we've heard that phrase. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Courage for what God has called us to be and to do as His people. Two reasons for this courage this morning. As we're in the midst of facing a difficult election, we're in the midst of a continuing pandemic, we're in the midst of continuing racial disharmony and all the many other things that are making headlines. Why should we, as the people of God, take good courage in this moment? Let me give you two reasons based upon this text. First of all, we know that the plans of the Lord will be completed. That's a resting place for us. Regardless of what happens a month from now in this election, regardless of of what continues to happen in all the swirling issues of our day, there is a strong foundation for us in this reality that the plans of God Almighty will not be thwarted. They will be completed. God will finish everything that He has begun to do. I think about growing up in my in my household and my dad when we were growing up was the the king of unfinished projects. So we moved into the house that my parents just recently sold to my sister and her husband when I was going into middle school. And and, and dad was determined that he was going to finish out some things in the house. And one of those things that he was going to finish was the baseboards in the upstairs where my sister and I had our bedrooms. He was going to do those baseboards himself because he wasn't going to pay somebody to do that project that he could do on his own. So we moved into the house. The baseboards weren't yet done. And so about two weeks in, rather than just having that ugly place where the baseboards should have been, uh, dad took those baseboards and he just set them against the wall. And there they remained for two decades. 
And I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know if those baseboards, I know they were never finished. I don't know if they were ever even secured to the wall. But that's just one of a number of unfinished projects that that my earthly father engaged in. But I'm thankful that my heavenly father never leaves a project unfinished. It may still be in process just as each of us are. He continues to work his beautiful work of sanctification in us, growing us in the likeness of Christ. If you belong to him, he will most certainly accomplish the purpose he has for you, which is to make you more and more like Jesus and to use your life for his glory. The plans of the Lord will be completed Again, Proverbs 21, I know I've referenced this verse so many times, but it's like the underlying theme of the book of Ezra, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the heart of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Be assured by that today. Regardless of whether it's, it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden in the White House. The plans and purposes of God will be accomplished. And as the people of God, we can find great assurance in that. I know that in some ways we say, well, what if that means that it's the hand of God for judgment upon our nation? As the people of God, we ought to be able to say amen to that. Recognizing that if Sodom and Gomorrah were worthy of the fiery judgment of God, are we not as well? But perhaps it'll be God's plan to take hold of the heart of our president and to bring about great revival. Or perhaps as he did in Ezra's day, the king, the highest in the land, will be secondary to what God's actually doing. Ezra would have been a no-name dude were it not for the word of God. Were it not for the fact that God was going to use that man To bring about great revival. Let's pray that God would raise up an Ezra in our day. Finally, one last reason for our assurance, for our courage in this moment is that the promises of the Lord will be confirmed. The word of God is full of the promises of God and the promises of God are not hope so's. They are certainties. Faith is the assurance of things not seen. It's not, well, I hope this is going to work out or I'm hedging my bets according to what God has said. No, this isn't a certainty. This is an assurance. This is something that we can stake our lives upon and we must stake our lives upon in order for it to have saving effect in us. The promises of God will be confirmed. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because they've already been confirmed. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their, yes, their confirmation, their assurance in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And if you don't know who Him is, let me encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the confirmation of all the promises of God. 
Jesus Christ is the reminder that it was God who spoke all things into creation from the very beginning and that our God, the one true and living God, is a holy God. He is a set-apart God. He is a God different from any other God. He is the God who speaks and moves and works according to His own purposes for His glory and for the good of those who would worship Him rightly. Jesus Christ reminds us of the reality of God as He came as God in the flesh to dwell among us. But Jesus also reminds us of the reality of sin, that all of us have sinned against God. We have all chosen rebellion against God rather than the righteousness of God. And Jesus is a reminder of that as he came and the fact that he who knew no sin of his own, that Christ having no sin of his own, then he became sin for us. That's what the cross was about, that Christ became sin for us so that through him, through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus reminds us of our sin, but it also reminds us that He is our Savior. His is the one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. And Jesus also reminds us that our response to His great gospel is one of repentance and faith. Turning from our sin and trusting in our Savior. But this is what biblical Christianity looks like. It's not just showing up at church on Sunday. It's just not memorizing a few Bible verses or praying before meals. It's a radical transformation. It's the kind of transformation that God brought about in Ezra's day. And by the way, if you want to see the fullness of it, go and read Nehemiah chapter 8. See the, the picture of revival in Nehemiah chapter 8 as the people of God stood for hours on end just to hear the word of God read. They were so hungry. Imagine what would happen at our church if we just showed up every Sunday and somebody just opened the word of God and began to read. I worry that there wouldn't be very many of us left a month or so later. But I want to say to us, Let's ask God to give us a hunger for His Word in our day. Let's ask God to raise up an Ezra from the young kids that are in our church right now. Let's ask God to bring a great revival that we may never live to see, but that God will bring about by prayers that were prayed in this day. And let's ask God to remind us that all of His beautiful promises from beginning to end, they find their full and complete and final fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And so, Father, we pray this morning that You would fix our eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake suffered the cross, endured its shame. His body was placed in a tomb that would have rightfully belonged to us. And yet three days later, He rose from the dead that we might have eternal, everlasting, never-ending life. And Father, we do pray this morning that you would raise up some Ezra's in our day. 
that you would cause us to delight in your word, to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes from knowing you through your word, from studying your word and doing your word and teaching your word. I pray for mothers and fathers, for grandmothers and grandfathers in this room, that they would take ever so seriously the task of passing on your word to the next generation. I pray that you would set people in our paths this week that need to hear what we have heard from you in your word in our morning devotions. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to be a people who experience your blessing because of grace-motivated obedience in our lives. That we hear your word and respond in faith. That we walk according to your ways. That we are gripped by your grace in such a way that our very lives are defined by the principles of your word and by the person who is at the center of your word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lead us, Lord. Give us a passion for your name and your renown. We pray this in Jesus' name.